0: Welcome to Stories from Every Day. I'm Liam Cosma and this is Episode 5, Hagedor and the End of the World. Today we're talking with artist Judy Cook about her family's history. Thanks for joining me.
1: When mama was down to her last quarter, she thought long and hard about what she would buy that would feed us the best and the longest. My mom's Sister Ruth was much more fashion-conscious and much more proper than my mom, and it just humiliated her to be driving in that car with me. Perhaps no one will ever care about my memories. Yet again, perhaps some desperate film producer will use them to make a movie about my life.
0: Hi, and welcome again to Stories from Every Day. So a few months ago, I was at a local art co-op where artists were unveiling new pieces uh, for the spring. One of the artists, a lady named Judy Cook, unveiled a series of textile pictures based on one of her mother's childhood experiences. It involved the end of the world. I talked with her about the piece and she told me this was one of hundreds of stories her mother had written down before passing away. Of course, I was fascinated. Luckily, Judy agreed to meet with me uh, at a later date to record a conversation about her mother and her stories. You know, while working on this podcast, I've had the opportunity to think about how our stories and experiences affect us and those around us. And during this episode, we get to explore the idea of experiences and stories rippling down through generations. Each story that Judy shared with me was intriguing, like little written time capsules giving us glimpses of life in another period of American history. Her mother was incredibly poetic and descriptive in her writing style, capturing details and emotions, painting wonderful pictures of her life. Speaking of pictures, Judy occasionally references pictures or works of art, which you obviously can't see while listening. And these will be posted on our blog at www.storiesfromeveryday.com. And now we'll begin with the story about the end of the world.
1: Okay, this is called The End of the World. It's Grace Anna's story. We'll be safe if we hang on to the dandelions. Sunlight warming my face, the ground firm beneath me, sleepy in the fresh field smell of dirt and dandelion. Holding onto my clump of dandelions, it didn't look to me like we were moving and unwinding. The trees were staying in the same place. The only things moving were the clouds in the sky. We were lying out in a field. It was the summer of 1926. The Jehovah Witnesses and several several other religious faiths believed that this was the year of Armageddon, and that the world would come to the end on the 26th day of the month of August. The world's like a big ball of string. It's going to unwind, and if one comes to an end, we'll be flipped out into space, but we will be safe if we hang on to our clump of dandelions, Uncle Harold told us. We hung on to the dandelions and gazed up at the sky, watching the clouds scuttle about on a calm summer day. Finally, Uncle Harold, our oracle, told us it was past time of day that the world was supposed to end. He guessed it wasn't going to happen after all. We got up and went up to the house to beg Grandma for something to eat, but Grandma was busy talking on the phone to one of her Jehovah Witness friends. Uncle Harold found a box of raisins, and we sat outside to eat them, tongues tart and sweet, listening to the rise and fall of Grandma's voice on the telephone ranting and raving about false prophecies and false prophets. It's
0: very poetic, the way it's written. Um, So this was your mother writing this? Right. And she remembered this from when she was a kid?
1: Yes, she did. Um, When she was uh, 85, she decided to write down all the family stories. Her sister had passed away. And so I'm going to read you this thing that she wrote, because it's the first thing in her journal, and it's very funny. She says, I am now 85 years old. They say that when you are old, you can remember the days of your childhood more clearly than you can remember what happened last month. I have started writing down some of the memories from my childhood before they too fade away into those gray storage bytes in the cyberspace. Perhaps no one will ever care about my memories. Yet again, perhaps some desperate film producer will use them to make a movie about my life.
0: Or, or podcast. Producer. Yeah, or a
1: podcast guy.
0: <laughs> that's so wonderful. She's so poetic the way she writes.
1: Yes, she is. And she has a unique ability to write as if she were that age talking. Which, yes. Which I think is fascinating.
0: No, that's that's a great point this this story is told the one you just read from the point of view of you know somebody that age um despite the fact that she's 85 years old writing this right um i don't know it's wonderful so did you hear kind of this story for the first time when she wrote it down
1: yeah she wrote down all her stories and i didn't actually read them until a number of years later um I mean, she spent months. I have seven journals of uh-huh. hand, handwritten stories. And so when she, she was 85 then, when she was 91, she got so she couldn't live alone anymore, and she had to move out of her house. And so she asked me what I wanted, and I told her I wanted her stories. And at the time, I, um, I didn't realize how much I was going to appreciate them and use them. And so the first story I read was about them stealing a boat and rowing across Coos Bay, Oregon to play on the log booms and then getting rough. And then they made it back, you know, obviously. But um, (laughs) I I read that and I said, how did you survive your childhood? And she just looked at me like, well, that's what we did, you know. So um, and so. Yeah, it's uh, it's a fascinating trip back into time because the way she writes, you see, you know, you can see it, you can hear it. And uh, I thought at first, I thought, wow, this would make a wonderful book. And then I thought that would probably take me 20 years to write this book. Mm-hmm. So I did make a blog for family and um, it's under Grace Hannah's stories and it starts out. Telling, you know, when she was little and some of the stories are like, um, I I lost my red slipper or I lost my red shoe or I lost my red ball, something like that. But then they get more interesting as you go along. And so um, I don't know if anybody else ever discovered him, but my family liked him. So that was good.
0: That's so even. I don't know. Even the stories about losing losing a red ball or red slipper, it just occurs to me that that what is it? say about somebody that that's what, like, that memory sticks. Mm-hmm. Like, and and how, you know, little things like that, that seem like mundane experiences, those are the things that we remember, you know, years and years and decades later. Um, yeah. I don't know. So how many of these, just out of curiosity, how many of these stories out of these seven journals, when you read them, you're, like, almost can't believe it. Like, that they... I don't know Did they kind
1: of they really happen. Yeah. Um, quite a few of them, you know. Um, her family. It starts kind of back with her mother. And um, so I she did write down some of the stories about her mom when she met her dad. And then the stories go through my mom's childhood up until she graduated from high school. But when you go back. Um. My grandmother's name was Pauline, and there's one place in the journals. Mom, my mother says something about, well, Daddy was special, but Mama was our world. She was our rock, and she truly was. So, the way my grandparents met was, um, my grandfather was working in a mill in Sandpoint, Idaho, and he'd just come to wit. To work there. He switched jobs often. He was kind of a free spirit, I guess you'd call him. And um, so he was working with my grandmother's brother and he wanted to meet her. And so they invited him to a swimming party. And so he was just immediately struck that, you know, she was really cool. And so he couldn't swim, but she was a good swimmer. So he wanted to impress her. So he jumped in the lake and proceeded to start drowning because. He thought he'd just come up and be able to swim, and that didn't didn't work out so well. So finally she grabbed him by the hair and said, do you need help? And he said, yes, so she pulled him out. So eventually they got married, and it's kind of interesting because she rescued him and she kind of, the rest of their life together, um, she was the one that rescued the family and kept the family together and made sure they were fed. And uh, uh, so, you know, she was the rock. So... Um, When this story, the one about the end of the world started, uh, my grandfather had hurt his back really badly and they were living up in Trafton, Washington, which is up by Snohomish somewhere. I don't even know if it exists anymore. And so his father, Grandpa Growly, um, or old granddad Gillis, I think was what they called him, but he was also known as Grandpa Growly. He came up to Washington to bring um, my grandfather down to Coos Bay because there was a chiropractor down there that he thought would be able to help him. So he came and got him and left my grandmother with three little kids, the oldest who was four, with 20 bucks. and they were going to send him money later for train tickets. So the journals go across their adventures, they tell their adventures of getting to Oregon, you know, stopping in Tacoma. To visit her brother and getting caught up in a whooping cough epidemic and um, be in quarantine for a couple months. and uh, But eventually they moved to Oregon and then they moved in with um, my grandfather's family and there were, I think there were 12 of them that lived together, plus when my mom's family came, which added, you know, um, five more people and eventually... She had a little sister, too. And so Uncle Harold, who is mentioned in these stories, was um, their uncle, but he was, I think he was like about 12. My mom's sister, Ruth, was um, nine. Mom was six, and Uncle Lester was four. And um, so he was supposed to watch him while Grandma went to work. And one of the things Mom said in... Some of her stories is if, if she knew where Uncle Harold took them and the adventures they went on, um, she would have quit that job really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, you know, and uh, there was one, there's another story, it's called, um, it's about Hagador, And Hagador was this, he was their boogeyman. And they were afraid of him. And because he'd walk past their house into town and he'd carry this gunny sack on his shoulder and um, he wouldn't look left or right. He just, but they were terrified of him because he was really shaggy looking and it was actually a very sad story about someone who had lost their wife and kind of, you know, went local. But to him, to them, he was terrifying. And so Uncle Harold told them that it wasn't... um, Hamburger he was taken to the store it was chopped up children in that gunny sack that he carried into the store all the time and then he said something like remember that meatloaf we had for dinner last night and so um, (laughs) I did I took the end of the world story and a couple other stories and made a family book called Adventures with Uncle Harold and uh, it tells the rowboat story, stealing the boat, a story about Hagedor and the end of the world.
0: So, I love that. That actually sounds like it would be a incredibly interesting book. Um, that's fascinating. So, Adventures with Uncle Harold.
1: Yeah, it's. Um, I did this. It's a screen print, uh, and so I did a lot of research on this because I they lived in Eastside, which was by. Um, Coos Bay, and so I went and found maps of what it looked like, and um, so this is them getting over and playing on the log booms, so I know you can't see this on your podcast, but anyway, that's a picture of what oh, I imagined Hagedor. H- Hagedor looked like, and so he's, he's wearing big boots that made noise. They could always tell when he was coming because they could hear his boots jingling, And he wears an old army overcoat and a gunny sack over his shoulder, and he's very shaggy. And um, so, yeah, he's a great character. I love it. So, I can tell you what happened next. Um, Okay. They eventually, uh, her father got better. And so, he wanted, he was, he knew how to work in a shake mill in a mill. And so, they came up to, um, Washington, and they lived in a. He were they worked in the mill in Aloha, which is by um, Moclips, and they lived in a little town called Carlisle. And so he went back to work in the mill, and then um, they went. The depression started, and all the mill jobs closed. And so my grandma found them um, jobs. They went around and picked berries, like. Um, farm workers do now you know and that was they did that during the summer when they weren't doing school and then during the winter time she found him a job being caretakers and then eventually they rented a little house and um, in Oakville and so my mom graduated from Oakville High School in 1934 and the next story is about her graduating class of 1934. So I'm going to read that. Okay? Absolutely. Okay. The week of my graduation from high school, I came down with the flu. I was too sick to go to baccalaureate on Sunday night. I was down in bed sick with a high temperature, endless coughing, plugged up nostrils, the works. We had planned so long for this day. Mama had found out that the beauty parlor in the Centralia Hotel would accept fresh produce or fried chickens for payment to have a permanent wave in your hair. The hotel would reimburse the beauty parlor and they would use the produce in their dining room. So one day I had skipped school and Mama and I had hitchhiked to Centralia with our sack of cabbages and fresh butchered chickens. And I had got my first permanent wave to look pretty for graduation. Then, all prettied up with my new curly hair, we had shopped in countless stores trying to find a formal dress for my graduation night. I had saved money from my last summer's harvest jobs, and Mama had added what money she could from the welfare duel. It seemed like there was a conspiracy, conspiracy against me. All of the graduation formals cost more money than we had. Of course, I liked more expensive dresses and they fitted and looked the best on me. We finally had to settle on a pale pale blue chiffon dress with a row of ruffles down one side. It was still a dollar over my budget, but Mama added the extra dollar. I didn't like this stupid ruffle, and I thought the dress was too short because it was about three inches short of coming down to my ankles. On all of the dresses I liked, the skirts were full and flowing and barely cleared the floor. Oh how much better the chiffon dress would have looked if I could have bought a slinky form-fitting slip to go under it. But I couldn't, but I didn't have enough money. So over my bulky, shapeless, heavy cotton welfare slip and my bulky welfare boxer type cotton underpants and my welfare brassiere, it was that was just a straight piece of cotton cloth cloth, gathered in the center front to make some sort of cups, the dress became even more shorter and too tight and made me look and feel even bigger than I was in the hips. Somewhere in the WPA, Work Progress Administration, they had a sewing shop where welfare workers sewed those heavy cotton underwear to disperse to needy families. The government was subsidizing the cotton growing farmers and industry, so they had to do something with all of the cotton. The cotton cloth used for an underwear factory was of such high quality cotton cloth that it was stiff like it had been starched and wouldn't wear out in 40 years. They should have made sales or sheets with it. Fortunately, they gave out five yard strips of a lighter weight printed fabric so we could make our dresses. The cotton dresses were made. we made were different styles but you might have the same print fabric on 30 other women or girls. But now here I was sick in bed and missing Sunday baccalaureate and not knowing if I would be well enough to go to graduation services the next day. I did go to graduation. Mama splurged and bought 2 gallons of gasoline so she could drive our old Star Durant sedan so I wouldn't have to walk the 3 miles into school in my formal. I know I never would have made that 6-mile round trip otherwise.
0: It's fascinating to me that this this was sounds like this was during the Great Depression or Yes, it was. 1934. And you know the, the frustration that your mother was dealing with, with finding a dress and insecure about how it, how it looked the same. I I feel like the same thing that high school kids worry about today, you Mm -hmm. know, boys and girls fashion. Um, so here it is a completely different time, you know, a completely different place, you know, and, and the same, I don't know, some of the same anxieties and problems, you know, translate, um,
1: I think we all Mm -hmm. have the same, you know, um, idea that it's Mm going to be beautiful and perfect. And then we're disappointed when we're not. And that, that comes through, you know, that you you don't always get what you want. And I think it was even more clear when you're, uh, going through something like that, where you were lucky if you had, you know, a place to live and something to eat. And, um. i think it really relates a lot probably to the um refugee situation we have now Mm. so
0: what was your family i mean i kind of got a feel for what they were doing during that time but um i mean i guess you already talked about it kind of how they scraped by and got the odd jobs and your mother worked you know even in high school to try to
1: yeah make money Um, yeah they they uh they drove around in the sedan that was my grandma bought that for herself, and that was her, one of her prized possessions. Although a lot of times they didn't have enough money for gas, but um, they traveled around in that often with a goat in the back seat um, for milk for the youngest and Alice. Um, and my my mom's. Sister Ruth was much more fashion content conscious and much more proper than my mom, and it just humiliated her to be driving in that car with the goat, which I always thought was kind of funny. Um, but, you know, they had good times, too, like this picture I, I got out. Um, this is of them camping, and so my grandmother, who doesn't look a bit older than her teenage daughters, is playing the guitar. My mom was drawing a picture because she was the artist of the family. And then her older sister and younger sister and Lester and a dog who I don't know who the name of the dog was, but, you know, like it was a canvas tent. And as my mom grew older, she belonged to camping clubs. She still loved camping. And I don't know if I would have had to live like that if I'd still love camping, you know. But, um, and so one of the things she talked about was they would sing cowboy songs at night, you know, when they were done working. So they, I mean, there were good times amongst the bad times. So, Yeah. yeah.
0: Out of curiosity, um, because this occurred to me when I was listening to that story too, talking about, you know, was it, you know, because your your mother's obviously your mother. Um, Mm -hmm. Is it... Um I don't know, what's it like hearing about her as a as a teenager and as a as a you know high school senior, trying to figure out what dress to wear and and um...
1: I think you I know, appreciate she, it now reading it at an older age than I would have as if I read it when I was her age, I would have just been going, oh mom, you know, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of stories that I didn't know that are, excuse me, in this, you know, in her journals that she never really talked about. So this next story occurs during the Depression years, and the family had moved from Eastside Oregon to Carlisle near Pacific Beach so Daddy could work in the lumber mill at Aloha. And when the mill closed down, Mama found them jobs picking peas and berries during the summer. They moved to Oakville to take care of a cattle farm somewhere near where the lucky eagle casino is now this one's called hungry jack and jill's daily the same argument mama wanted to go into town on welfare day day and sign up for the dole no pauline no we will never beg for charity any day now the mill will reopen at aloha and we can go back to Carlisle where we belong everything was better there mama knew better she couldn't change Daddy's mindset, he would rather see us starve than ask for welfare. The depression had hit the mill towns hard. The Loa Mill closed down, only opening for special orders. Mama found us seasonal jobs picking peas and berries. We moved to Oakville in 1931 to be caretakers of a cattle farm. The day came when Mama was down to her last quarter. She thought long and hard about what she would buy that would feed us the best and the longest. With Hungry Jack pancake mix, you only had to add water. Yes, that which she would get, pancakes with our homemade country butter would be best. It was a long way by road to the grocery store, but just across the Chehalis River from our swimming hole was the Independence Store, a gravel beach sloped down to the river on our side, facing a steep, solid bank rock bank across the water. If we could climb up that bank, we could get to the store. Put on your swimming suits, girls. We're going to the store to buy pancake mix. But, Mama, how will we keep it dry? I'll swim on my back and hold the sack up out of the water. You girls will guide me back across the river. Mama led the way, her only quarter tied in a handkerchief, safely pinned in between her breasts. We swam across the river. A trail led us up the bank to the parking lot of the store. Customers stared when we came in the door. Unconcerned, Mama dug her quarter out of her bra. Five pounds of pancake mix, please. Ruth May and I took turns carrying our worries and the pancake mix back down the bank would mama be able to swim that far holding her arms straight up just holding the bag out of the water would she sink could she swim just kicking her feet mama was determined in grand style arms straight up her sail of the pancake mix held high safely dry she kicked her way across the river her tugboats we guided her to shore We helped mama to her feet. She rubbed her arms. I'm okay. Let's go. We walked up to the house. Mama built up the fire in the kitchen range and we had a lunch of pancakes dipping and country melted melted country butter. Before that sack of pancake mix was used up, daddy was called back to work at the mill in Aloha. I told you the mill would save us. Start packing. We'll be moving back to Carlisle soon. Mama didn't argue. All right, Norman she kissed him goodbye. The next day was welfare day. Mama went to Oakville and signed up. She came home with a sack full of lard, rice, dry beans, and cans of beef. We could now have bean soup days after alternating with pancake days. Daddy had his pride intact, and we had food on the table. May God bless a mother like ours.
0: It's almost hard to imagine her swimming on her back with
1: can you imagine you know, how heavy that got?
0: Said five pounds. Straight up. Yeah. I can barely swim <laughs> without pancake mix.
1: Well, she was a very strong swimmer. So
0: <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. And then carrying it back to the house. Yeah. And that decision, twenty five cents.
1: Right. I mean, you know, you can't imagine now getting that low on money. You know, and what would you do? And back, you know, the welfare. Um, that was something new, I think, that started during the depression. Um, and they didn't have, I mean, they handed out food, but I don't think they really handed out, and clothes, but I don't know if they gave out welfare checks, you know.
0: Well, and you can imagine that same debate about, you know, charity versus waiting for work occurring in thousands and thousands of of households Mm -hmm. where people tried to struggle to to figure it out Um, and still do today although it's you know different situation but Mm -hmm. now it's pretty incredible how much did your family's experiences during the depression of scraping by with with barely anything and trying to make ends meet with you know surviving on a quarter's worth of pancake mix for days and how did that how did you see that growing did that trickle down any of those experiences how did that affect
1: my know? mother could feed 12 people on a carton of cottage cheese some applesauce some olives and whatever else she might find she'd have a full table full of food and you would think there was nothing to eat so Um, and the other ways it trickled down was, um, she kind of became a bit of a hoarder. Uh, and I think maybe a lot of depression people did that because it was like, I remember back in the seventies and there was supposedly going to be a, um, toilet paper shortage And I know where they were. They were all in my mother's bathroom because (laughs) (laughs) she had package upon package of toilet paper. And I think the fear of um, running out of food uh, definitely trickled down. And so my mother, um, after high school, she married my dad and then um, my oldest brother was This would have been like in in early 1940, I think they got married. My brother was born in 1940, so they got married before that. But then World War II happened. And so after he came back from the war, then we were born, my older other brother and I. And then my parents got divorced when I was 12. I mean, not 12, two. Excuse me. My oldest brother was 12. And so my mom was on her own in the 1950s as a divorced woman which was um, not very socially accepted at the time and she was feeding three kids and she was on welfare for a while and then she went back to work Um, she went to work as a librarian and city clerk in Oakville and she worked there Till I was in, that was when I was about five, and then when I was in high school, she went back to school and she um, took bookkeeping and accounting, and she got a job as an accountant up here for the state of Washington, and she ended up selling our house down there and moving to Olympia and buying her own house. So I think the um, not wanting to be on charity, the welfare that. You know, probably trickled down to her and got her off of it, and also the ability to stand on her own and and take care of us and make sure um, we were fed and we were going to school, and um, that that came from her mother, you know, because mm. um, Grandma Pauline she went as far as she could in school back in that time. I think she then he went for two years of high school and her grandpa he quit school when he was in the fourth grade so and then you know um, there's a strong value on education that that trickles down through the family so wow.
0: yeah. I'm just imagine how how could your your mother not learn to be so so determined and, and self-sufficient seeing your mother um, and what she went through
1: and my grandmother in- um, she built a house that um that they lived in. She built it herself, really, yeah, now, my mom didn't build a house, but she could fix just about yeah. anything and uh you know if she'd figure out how to do it, so she also had a million tools because if one was better, five was <laughs> even more better. You know? yeah now, I'm not saying I could do that, but maybe if I had to, who knows, yeah.
0: So um, so your mother was also an artist.
1: Yes, and um, that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to be an artist. And um, so she, she loved to draw, she liked to paint. Um, I have a list somewhere here of everything she did. Okay, so she did watercolors, sumi painting, oil painting, acrylic painting, paper mache, she was a woodworker. She polished rocks. Um, one time we she would carve soapstone. One time we went camping up at Mount and She found this gigantic rock and she said, it was soapstone, she says, can I bring that home? And I said, if you can get it in the car, you can bring it home. So she goes down to the creek, she picks up this great big rock, carries it up, puts it in the car. We drive home, we get home, she can't get it out of the car cause it's too heavy. So (laughs) I don't know how long she kept that rock or what she did with it, but she was determined. So um, when we were little and a lot of times it was a big treat if she would draw with us or let us use her pastels and draw pictures. So um, I remember coming home from my dad's house and my stepsister was three years older and she was drawing stick figures. And I came home and drew a stick figure and my mom told me I was an artist and that kind of stuck, <laughs> you know, because um, I definitely inherited my interest and my talent from her. So, um, And what's fun about about these stories is being able to interpret them I guess, illustrate them in my, in my, and um, what I see and how I interpret them in, in a piece of art. Um, and transferring it, on, I do a lot of, a lot of it's on textiles. And so um, it's been a real interesting journey going, telling telling stories on cloth is kind of what I call it
0: no i've i've seen i mean i've seen your work and it's all of these stories and these experiences that your mother had take on a completely new life it's like you're reinventing them Mm -hmm. um refreshing them i mean putting them down and and uh i don't know it's it's really amazing to see them come to life these these stories that happened you know decades ago um
1: yeah Yeah, i um i really kind of get into the whole process you know like when i was doing her stories i like the one about um her graduation dress and i researched the wpa and found pictures of those places where people sewed you know and they they called them there was one in texas and their motto was we fix anything you know or we no, it was wpa we patch anything which was clever play on words and you know, like um, other things, the pictures I illustrated of some of their stories down in Oregon. I I researched what it looked, found pictures of what it looked like back then, and maps, and and inter, You know, I guess I really like research. <laughs> uh, I like getting into a project. You just kind of dive in and see where it's where it's going, and. I also do my own, I've done my own stories and other family members' stories too. You know, it's not just hers, but I mean, I've got this great resource here of all these journals. So, yeah,
0: it's easy, but yeah. I mean, I, I imagine it's having them written down is wonderful. And and um, I imagine doing this art and doing this research gives you a real appreciation for how much, um, you know, the the experiences that your your parents have your grandparents have kind of trickle down and affect you know your family and and you know people today um Mm -hmm. you know the ripple effects of those even mundane experiences um i don't know the effect they have on later generations um if that makes sense
1: yeah i think it does and um you know like at first when She wrote it all down. I wasn't that interested. But once I started reading them, then, you know, it was, wow, I'm really, really glad I read these. And I was really glad that I read them while she was still alive because I could talk to her about them. One of the things I have of hers is a box full of handkerchiefs. And some of them are embroidered. Some of them are tatted, which is a form of making lace. Some of them are something that came from the dime store. I have no idea, other than a few of them have their initials on them, I have no idea of the story behind those handkerchiefs. And it's like, wow, Uh, you know, I think that's when someone passes and and you don't know the family stories. It's like those handkerchiefs. You've got something there, but what does it mean?
0: Like, no pieces of a story glimpses mm-hmm. and the rest is
1: it's gone, gone. yeah so.
0: Every time I hear that last part about the handkerchiefs and the the lost stories uh, associated with them, I think about a bowl that I have sitting in my living room. When my wife was in graduate school in New York City, um, and this is before we were married, we were still dating at the time, um, she took a trip on a train to visit my grandmother um, who was living on Long Island. Never met her before, um, but was brave enough uh, to meet her for the first time by herself and spend um, a couple days with her. And it made her weekend. Um, they went out to uh, dinner and had a wonderful time. And on the way to bed one night, my wife commented on a bowl, uh, a milk glass hobnail bowl with a lid sitting on a table. And uh, I remember that bowl from when I was a kid. It was always sitting in my grandmother's living room filled with uh, mints or candy or M&M's. Um, and I have vivid memories of that from when I was four or five years old. And the next day when my wife went to leave to get on the train, my grandmother handed her the bowl all wrapped up and packaged and ready to go and told her that she wanted to, to pass this on to, to someone who would appreciate it and told her the story behind it that it was a gift from my grandfather way back when, um, she had always loved milk glass and my grandfather's gesture got her this bowl and now i was lucky enough to be passed along to me and i treasure it and value it but what makes it valuable is is that story behind it is knowing that it was this bowl was a gift from my grandfather to my grandmother when they were married and and after that it was a gift from my grandmother to my wife um and if that story was to be lost if this bowl ends up in an antique store somewhere um just another of hundreds of milk glass items sitting on a shelf uh, that would really it would be tragic wouldn't it and it would would kind of i don't know take away from the value of that bowl um and the handkerchiefs remind me of that and it's a nice little little reminder so this episode uh, and listening to, to the stories Judy's mom told really inspired me to capture uh, more of my family stories and to collect more of the history of different items that that have been passed on from generation to generation. And maybe in a future episode, I'll, I'll get to share some of those uh, with you. Um, and hopefully it inspired, you know, some of you to do the same. So before I go, I wanted to mention that if you are interested in Judy's artwork, you can find samples of her work at www.judycookart.com. And I encourage you to check those out because her art is wonderful. Um, And as always, you can connect with me at www.storiesfromeveryday.com. Thanks for listening and uh, hope to have you back for the next episode.